This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida IFAS Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. My guest today, Nick Meyer, is an award-winning artist whose science background and passions for aquatic life and fly fishing both inform and inspire his beautiful, vibrant works. Join us as Nick explains his metamorphosis from child naturalist to globe-trotting marine biologist, to finally celebrated nature illustrator specializing in fish and other marine life. We'll be right back after these messages. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquariumania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is award-winning nature artist Nick Meyer. Hey, Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I, I, I don't know if I told you how I first found out about you. I was, I'm, I'm kind of a fish art nerd, so if you ever go to my house, I've got nothing but wooden pieces or paintings or drawings of fish basically all over the place. And uh, Oh, nice. I even have like a, um, a Florida fishes section. I've got like an Indo-Pacific fishes section. So yeah, it's kind of uh-huh. nerdy. I've, you know, I've had an opportunity to get some local artists work as well as when I've gone overseas. So anyway, I was going through trying to look cool. for some things, saw your art pop up, read a little bit more about you and thought, wow, this, this person's really, really interesting. So that's kind of how I got in touch with you and, and landed you here. So as I usually start out with my interviews, I kind of want to get a little bit of early childhood background. So can you tell us what were some of the early influences that made you interested in aquatic life? And uh, I, I think you mentioned online turtles were kind of a big part of it. Yeah, turtles were, were definitely a big part of it. Um, but I would say even before I started catching turtles, so I, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and um, lived there for the first six years of my life. And then moved to Rhode Island and, you know, so pretty much grew up in Rhode Island. But when I was really small, my mom uh, would take me to the University of Michigan Museum of Natural History. And I would walk around in there with her. And uh, I actually remember there's one particular, I love these uh, dioramas. And um, there was this one particular diorama that was the like an undersea view of the prehistoric sea and it had 
like Ammonites and these, you remember those, uh, I'm sure you probably know the names, of, I, I can't remember the species names of them, but those prehistoric squid that actually had a shell. I remember what you're talking about. I forgot. Yeah, I, I'm spacing yeah. out what they're called. Uh, it, it'll come, yeah. Diorama was, it was like predominantly pink and they were like these huge feather dusters and I don't know, it just it seemed like such an incredibly fascinating world inside there that just, I'd always like to stare at that one diorama. And then the other thing was, um, there were, I don't know if you're familiar with like this, these old series of books called the Time Life book series. It was kind of like an encyclopedia type of series of books and there was one called The Sea that... Uh, I would, I just would spend hours and hours looking through that book. And like, I, when I got old enough to read, I'd like memorize the, the captions and my dad would read to me from that book. Like, <laughs> I mean, of course they would read to me regular kids books too, but like that was, I was just fascinated by that book. And then, um, so those were two real early influences. And then when I got older, my nickname was the turtle man. And uh, I used to go to this pond near my house and catch turtles all the time. And so, yeah, I've just kind of always had, I don't know why, but this, everything aquatic was just kind of like my thing. Cool. So now I have to ask, just because we do uh, deal a lot with aquariums in general. Did you ever have an aquarium in, at home or did you ever set one up? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, like when I was a kid, my room was basically like a natural history museum, kind of going back to the whole natural history museum thing. Like my parents were actually concerned about my health because uh, I had like, I also got into fly fishing and, and fly, I would tie my own flies. And so I had all these fly tying materials and then I, like I'd get like animals and salt the hides. And so I had like, you know, all this feather and furs in my room. And then I had, had like, these shelves with aquaria and um yeah so i i mean i actually made made a little list here of some of the things i had in my tank so i had goldfish of all varieties from comets to bubble eyes to eventually uh, i raised koi i had like a 10 15 pound koi that i that i raised from when they were you know like a couple inches big the usual siamese fighting fish that all kids have oscars I had the real piranhas before they started doing the pakus, seahorses, tropical salt water, temperate salt water. I actually used to make my own uh, wet dry filters and just I, I kind of got into like cutting and plexiglass and stuff like that with those biospheres. I had venomous rattlesnakes, hamsters, gerbils, reticulated python, turtles, frogs. And then three kind of other interesting things were I had a concrete goldfish pond in my backyard that became kind of like this uh, like neighborhood gathering spot where all the neighborhood kids would catch stuff and we put it in this pond and we always would spend a lot of time out there. I had a five gallon saltwater tropical tank that I made like self-contained with a wet dry filter in the back. You know, like you normally you wouldn't, a uh, saltwater tank, you need a larger tank to uh, have stable salinity. But this was a tiny little uh, kind of experimental project, but it was sealed. So I didn't have, um, you know, the evaporation that like caused the fluctuation of the salinity. And then I had a, um, I had a hundred grand, a hundred gallon tank that I made from a Swiss army knife too. That's amazing. <laughs> this was Rhode Island This at this point? When I was really young, I was in uh, Rhode Island. Like some of these things, like the venomous rattlesnakes, I didn't have till I was older. My parents would never would let me have. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. 
and uh, and the and the hamsters were probably terrified, but that's you know. Yeah, all these things weren't all at the same time. This is kind of like over the years. I, but yeah, I've, so it's always had fish tanks and but anytime someone would have one like out in front of their house like that they're getting rid of our yard sale i always pick them up and yeah it's kind of a hoarder of fish tanks <laughs> that sounds very very informative for your uh your future so um explain how fishing also became kind of part of your foundation well sort of that same pond where um i used to catch the turtles like it, this place was called willet pond it was this little um it's actually a pretty polluted little pond near my house but we didn't really know anything different. It was um, all fed by mobile oil property. And uh, back then, I think it's all been um, you know cleaned up now, but back then it was just like really, really badly polluted with oil. And my mom would take us to this pond when before we were able to go on our own. And um, that's where I kind of started fishing just like with a worm and a bobber for uh, catfish. Up here, we call them bullhead. Down there, we call them catfish. And uh, my dad kind of introduced me to fly fishing, also in Rhode Island. And then my uncle actually lived up in Vermont. I actually live in Vermont now. And uh, he lived near, somewhat near the Manchester headquarters of Orvis. And he brought me there one day. And um, I met this salesman there named Gordy Hines. And he kind of took me under his wing and taught me all about fly fishing, gave me a whole bunch of gear and just kind of like was sort of like my fly fishing mentor. So that's, that's where it started. Uh, that's pretty cool. So we're going to move forward uh, a little bit now. And uh, all of these early influences led you to go into marine biology. And I'm going to kind of skip over high school, but you went to Brown, which is very impressive for both undergrad and grad school. Thanks. Can you yeah. kind of tell us a little bit about your path there and, and what you studied? Yeah, I mean, well, Brown University obviously is a really solid biology program. And I mean, I, mean, I think... Um, some of the really top-notch professors that I had there really inspired me to keep going with it. I mean, I had my general bio class was taught by Dr. Ken Miller, who actually wrote the textbook. <laughs> so uh, he's a pretty well-known cellular biologist and a textbook author and just a really, really phenomenal lecturer. And then my my advisor was uh, Dr. Mark Burtness. He taught my um, invertebrate zoology class that I took, which was extremely difficult class, but I just absolutely loved it. Just like memorizing that whole uh, phylogenetic tree of all the invertebrates. Like I still know all of that, just like it's just in my head for somehow, you know, because of that course. And so I had some good, like kind of inspiring professors at Brown, but Brown didn't really have a all that great of a, a marine biology program. So um, I went to Duke to like fully immerse myself in in uh, the marine biology. They have a separate campus called the Duke University Marine Lab and had some awesome professors and an awesome experience there too. Uh, one was Dr. Dan Richoff, who was a specialist in uh, fouling organisms of all things, you know, like he did a lot of work for the Navy, um, you know, because the organisms like tunicates and barnacles and stuff attached to the bombs of ships and that drag can cost like millions of dollars in fuel. And so anyway, so they pour a lot of money into that kind of research. But he was just a really cool, like kind of out there professor that was inspiring and um yeah, so I guess, you know, those professors had an impact on me and then um, in, inspired me to actually do 
in real life what I went to college for, you know, like I, I think a lot of people study one thing and do something else, whereas I just went right into the marine biology as soon as I graduated. So can you tell us a little bit about some of that research? And uh, I, I know you went to a number of different places and spent different periods of time doing different types of research. And I think you also mentioned a couple of near-death experiences. So maybe <laughs> maybe give us a little taste of all of that. Sure. Yeah. Well, first place that I went and actually did marine biology in real life was in Alaska. I was working for Alaska Fish and Game um, way back then was just shortly after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. I was on Kodiak Island and um, we were doing some research on the effects of the Exxon Valdez oil spill on the salmon, which oddly enough had a really great impact on them because this oil spill caused a closure of commercial fishing because they didn't want anybody to you know, eat a contaminated fish. So it stopped all commercial fishing. So tons of fish got back into the rivers and the population exploded. So is that actually really good for them because the oil floated on the surface. So it really didn't affect the fish a whole lot. It was more like marine mammals and and uh seabirds and things like that that were more affected but so that all these um entry-level uh marine biology jobs are seasonal and you're somebody just just out of fresh out of college you don't have any responsibilities and you can do stuff like that travel around work for a few months then go somewhere else and so that's what i did and I, so that was a seasonal position then i i jumped right into a commercial fishing boat um i had some commercial fishing experience down in Rhode Island. So um, yeah, I got <laughs> I got a job on a commercial fishing boat up in Alaska and uh, ended up falling overboard. We uh, had the whole boat full of fish and we blew a hydraulic hose and it sprayed hydraulic fluid everywhere. And it's just this horrible catastrophe. We had this special um, soap that was specific for hydraulic fluid and mopped the deck with that. It really didn't have, it didn't change it. it was still like slippery as hell and um so uh, like working on a commercial fishing boat this was a, a 48 foot per saner so it was a pretty small boat for as far as commercial fishing boats go and like a, it was only a crew of four and uh, one guy was in this little skiff off that that would hang um off the back so it was really almost more like a crew of three on deck and it was almost like kind of like being on a football team. You know, it was like there was this whole series of sort of plays where you're handing stuff off and clipping this on there. And then you pull this quick release and this thing shoots out. And it's also pretty dangerous, too, that you, you have to know the order of this whole thing. But anyway, so, you know, we were involved in this thing where we're kind of you're almost like sprinting while you're doing this stuff. And one guy throws me a, a line and then I turn around. Next thing I knew, I flew all the way across from starboard to port side backwards flipped over backwards and i'm in the water and all i see is bubbles because i had gone over the about mid uh ship length off the side and um that's where the, <laughs> where the propellers were oh geez and I, and I assume it was cold yeah it was really it was freezing <laughs> cold i didn't a lot of fishermen would fish in these mustang suits a full body uh flotation device that was insulated all i had on was a raincoat but somehow my uh, my raincoat was buttoned all the way to my chin and it filled up with air and floated me up like a life preserver. Oh, so lucky. that was really lucky. <laughs> yeah. And I but so I came up to the surface. I'm like, oh wow, I'm really close to the boat. And then the boat just I, I'm looking right at the stern and the, and it's just 
steaming away from me because the captain didn't know that I had fallen in. And uh, so then I swam over to the other boat, the skiff I was talking about, and I finally get myself over there and uh, grab onto a line, pull myself over to it. And the guy wouldn't help me in because what happens a lot of time is two people end up drowning when one person tries to save the other person who's panicking because they're about to get hypothermia. So he kind of coached me and helped me a little bit, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, that was really intense. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Now I, I have to ask, what kind of fish were you guys catching? Salmon. Yeah. Uh, okay. All, I mean, we'd follow the migrations of like, you know, the sockeye salmon obviously were the most expensive and most profitable. And then we'd fish for the Kings and the, um, the humpies were last the, the pink salmon. Okay, cool. Well, that was Alaska. And then I also worked in Costa Rica doing some research on sea turtles, which is really interesting. There was this one beach where all these um, adult sea turtles would come back to lay their eggs in Tortuguero on the Caribbean side, just like right on the Nicaraguan border. So that was very cool. Got to do some fishing while I was down there, which which was a real bonus. So we, we were the first people to tag uh, leatherback sea turtles down there. Mostly what the um, research station was known for, this was at the time, the organization was called the Caribbean Conservation Corporation. I think they've changed names since then. But what they were known for was tagging um, green sea turtles. So we tagged, we were the first ones to tag um, leatherbacks, which are are now, uh, I think they're still continuing to tag those. But that was really interesting. I worked uh, for Oregon State University and then Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife doing work on salmon and steelhead out there. I did I did some uh, radio tracking work with the out-migrating salmon smolt and some habitat restoration work with for steelhead, for a wild strain of steelhead, which was really interesting experience. And um, down in the Florida Keys, I, did, I worked at a, a place called Sea Camp, which is like a, uh, it was also called Newfound Harbor Marine Institute. It's like a camp for kids where we were teaching them about coral reefs and taking them out to the coral reefs and and teaching them about coral and doing uh, snorkeling dives. Also did a little bit of aquaculture in Rhode Island when I was in grad school, raising oysters at a place called Moonstone Oysters. That was that was pretty interesting. So yeah, I got, you know, in those earlier years, got to got to travel around and have some cool experiences doing marine biology related stuff. So now there was something about a, a flow plane issue too, right? Yeah, that so I um I like to fish and I also uh am a hunter. You know, I I believe in getting your own food, you know, I, I, as a fly fisherman I I uh I release most of the fish I catch, but I do like to eat fish and I do like to eat meat, so I, I do uh you know appreciate harvesting them myself. But I was on a caribou hunt on the Labrador Quebec border and uh this really remote area where we had to take two different planes to remote camps to get there and um we <laughs> these planes look like they were i mean i think they were from the 50s uh these float planes the, the, i mean there there's not a whole lot that can go wrong with them um you know they're pretty simple but you know going on these planes that are mostly mechanical with no electronics it's it is kind of an interesting experience you know the pilots like cranking all these gears and spinning these things. And there's, there aren't really buttons or LEDs or anything like that. The only thing he had was his cell phone stuck on a suction cup on the windshield that he was using for his navigation. That does sound a little bit scary. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so anyways, uh, they basically navigate by sight. 
you know, these guys know the mountains and when there's cloud cover, you don't want to go into the clouds because you can't see anything. And um, you, usually what you do is you land in a random lake and just wait it out, wait for the cloud, the storm to pass. So we came into some bad weather and uh, we were just following the perimeter of this cloud and uh, we were burning a lot of fuel. I actually was, I was the next chair back from the pilot and I saw the fuel gauge red light came on and I nudged like the guy next to me. I'm like, look at that. But I didn't know there were two tanks. So he, he ended up switching to the other tank, but that, that was a little nerve wracking. But yeah, so uh, we were getting low on fuel. So he decided to just go for it and go right through the cloud. And um, sure enough, next thing you know, like we're staring at a rock face and he did like just one of these like 90 degree turns and just barely, you know, just turned the plane sideways. Everything fell, you know, to one side of the plane and, and uh, we just kind of did this like really sharp turn. And I don't think that's a stretch to say that was a near death experience, you know, like uh, <laughs> yeah. almost hitting that mountainside. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussion with my guest, Nick Meyer, award-winning fish and marine life illustrator after these messages from our sponsors. How many of you have pets? My hand's raised. Now think about how lucky you are to have such a sweet little pet in your life. And that pet is lucky to have you too. But unfortunately, there are countless pets out there that don't have a home to call their own. However, Bob's from Skechers is trying to change that. So we developed Bob's for dogs and cats to help pets in need. With every purchase of adorable Bob's footwear or fun, stylish apparel, or even the cutest Bob's pet accessories, Skechers makes a donation to Petco Love to help save shelter pets. And with your help, we've already saved the lives of over 1 million pets and raised over $7 million. So while you're getting style and comfort with features like Skechers' famous memory foam cushioning, you're also helping to save an adorable pet in need and helping another lucky owner be connected with a future best friend and companion. Because happiness is having a loving pet by your side. Find Bob's at a Skechers store, Skechers.com, select pet co-locations, or wherever stylish footwear is sold. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, artist Nick Meyer. So we've got a pretty good kind of overview of, of some of your early influences and, and then uh, some of your work in science. Obviously, all of this has led to your current work as an artist. Can you give us some kind of insights in how the uh, science and, and everything that you did as a child and, and uh, kind of led you and got you into art as your current and probably final profession? Wow, a great question. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you may think, well, geez, this guy like spent all his time and money getting degrees in biology and you know and then uh, worked in that field and now he's an artist like that seems like a uh 180 degree uh you know different direction but the reality is yeah i mean i feel like it all is one trajectory that all of the the science really informs what i do now the sort of scientific way of observing something is how i'm able to to translate that onto a piece of paper. So I think that 
just staring at something, this may sound a little weird, but just staring at something, you eventually figure it out. Like from like, and, and like say, so it, an example of what I mean by that is um, I think particularly where things can get overwhelming as an artist trying to make, so, well, let me back up. So my art is pretty detailed and, you know, kind of like scientific illustration slash naturalist type of a genre of art so it's it's very accurate and so i'm my goal is to you know figure out how things look and and then make accurate paintings of them and sometimes when you're looking at like the scale pattern like like for example of a tuna it just looks like ridiculous i mean they got you got small scales here scales so big that they're kind of blended together there there's like these arcing shapes of where the scales are on the fish they got these deep grooves and pockets where the fins fit into and you know so like the scale patterns can be overwhelming and like different the coloration patterns of fish can be some just sometimes just like what the heck is going on like i remember one fish that i did for the catalina islands dive buddies book was called a giant kelp fish which they're only about you know, eight inches long. So it's kind of a goofy name, but they have this ridiculous reticulated pattern. I mean, it's not even really a pattern, but it's this uh, coloration. And I, I spent so much time just looking at, at the real fish. And, you know, I think that the process of drawing alongside with that is sort of a, it's a kind of a guide for the meditation of just staring at something and that eventually it there's just always something that clicks and you know with that fish it took hours and then i was like oh okay so there's actually i can kind of see there's like these bands and then there's a bunch of holes in these bands and all right so now it makes sense to me i mean i could just go ahead and just instantly start painting it right away but for some reason i i don't know i got to kind of figure these things out like and it was actually kind of similar to one of the most recent paintings i did was of a gila monster and it was a similar kind of thing well like this just looks like there's no rhyme or reason to the pattern and uh and then after staring at it for a while it was like okay so there are these bands on the tail that are pretty defined and then as you go from the tail to the head the bands get much less defined and and more interrupted with these polka dots and so yeah it's kind of like a long answer but i just feel like the most valuable skill as a scientist is making astute observations and i think that that is for the type of painting that i do is is also one of the best skills yeah no that makes sense and yeah i, I was thinking you were kind of heading toward the kind of just the you'd had to do so many observations obviously handled a lot of fish and kind of got really you know really kind of adept at it because i yeah i think obviously there are people that try to paint natural, like you say, kind of scientific illustration that they, they don't really quite do it. But yeah, your stuff is really, uh, is really there. So I appreciate it. Thanks. And uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I believe in some of your materials, you mentioned that uh, there was a school bus in the Keys that kind of helped make you uh, into a full-time artist. Can you uh, give us a yeah, <laughs> story for that. Yeah, so down in the Florida Keys, there's not a whole lot of land. You know, it's, land is is very um, congested and, and valuable. And so this place is this is going back to the place I mentioned before, Sea Camp, Newfound Harbor Marine Institute. I was an intern there doing this um, outdoor education, marine education, and so I was kind of at the bottom of the uh, totem pole. And they had a, um, a an old school bus that was like the office for the interns, and uh, I set up a little 
like, I don't know, they, they were, it was kind of like the, they had converted into these little cubicles and I set up kind of like a little mini tiny uh, studio there where I worked on paintings in my spare time. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was broke and went down to Key West with this painting. I, I got it framed there, found a frame shop. This was on Big Pine Key was where the, the lab was. And uh, went just went down to Key West and started walking around with this painting and went into some galleries and said, hey, do you want to you want to show this? And I walked into this gallery called the Game Fish Gallery, right? It's pretty uh, perfect fit. And they said, yeah, yeah, we'll hang this up. It was a, a painting of a tarpon over these uh, turtle grass flats. Cool. Yeah, it was uh, maybe like a month later they sold it, and um, I want to say it was like seven hundred and fifty dollars or nine hundred and fifty dollars. It was less than a thousand dollars. How much were you asking, or were you thinking you would get? They asked me how much I wanted to price it at, and I was like, I don't know, whatever you guys want. I don't, I, I've never sold a painting before, <laughs> so so they gave me a check, and I was just like, oh my god, I can't believe like someone wanted to buy that, and. Uh, you know, this was what I like to do is to paint. That was sort of a pivotal moment, I guess. You know, it was pretty cool. So you have been painting all along. So what would you say maybe are your major major motivations and, and goals at this point? You kind of had this long-term interest in it. You know, science informed it as well as your other things. And, and kind of now you do it. So what would you say are kind of maybe like motivations and goals with your art? Uh, well, at this point... You know, originally it was just sort of like, oh, I like to fish. I like to catch stuff. And so it was just sort of like an extension of that, like an expression of my passion and stuff. And now it's kind of turned more into like my mission is to connect people with nature through art. And I basically paint to share my awe of the natural world to inspire people to see that beauty. So, yeah, yeah, I think you do. Definitely. Thank you. And uh, I think particularly in this day and age where people are so plugged in all the time and kids are just never like almost the phones have become integrated into their bodies they never like are apart from them like getting people to appreciate nature yeah it's just i feel like it's a valuable thing to try and promote uh, as a biologist obviously we are part of nature as i'm sure you'd agree yeah, no, I do agree. And yeah, I think I think that's kind of a common concern, you know, a lot of urbanization and people just don't connect anymore. Um, just just the way society has been. So yeah, no, I, no, I, I completely agree. Now, you obviously have started and have been expanding outside of marine and freshwater fishes, but but those are kind of been your your standards. Can you uh, tell us some of your or mention some of your favorite fish paintings and maybe a couple stories behind them? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I guess probably like a cool thing is that it seems like pretty often the fish that I'm working on most recently is is the, is is my favorite. <laughs> so it's I think it's a good thing that it's not just like oh geez man I really nailed that one back in 1995 or whatever you know. <laughs> I'm actually what I'm really inspired about right now is I'm about to release a new series of paintings that I'm calling the Blackwater series where I've, you know, I've been painting on white paper since I, was, since I was one. So this is a whole series of paintings that are painted on black watercolor paper. And it was inspired by, I'm not sure, sure if you're familiar with the uh, Blackwater Diving 
but it's a kind of it's actually more of a people just do it snorkeling you're not going very deep it's more of snorkeling than it is actually diving or it can be done snorkeling instead of diving because you're in such shallow water but basically it's and this is mostly done in the tropics and uh, places as easy to get to as cancun where are you familiar with like vertical migration of of like uh, organisms that come right right so you're, you're talking about like night diving right yeah so like it, if you go off the continental shelf on on nights that are completely pitch black like on a new moon these deep ocean creatures that you would need to risk your life to go down and see and and have like lots of money to go down in a, a sub to go down to the ocean floor just naturally vertically migrate up to the surface and then they hang these green lights off the back of the boat and you jump in and, and you can photograph these these creatures that come down from the depths. And, and I've discovered these people that are doing this, this photography. I think one of them is Blackwater Cozumel uh, on Instagram. And uh, like these uh, images just really inspired me to make a whole series of paintings of, of these crazy larval like larval sailfish that are like three inches long and long tentacle octopi that are just nearly transparent and all these yeah, yeah like noplier you know larval forms of all different kinds of things that for safety reasons live way deep down but can come up to take advantage of you know plankton at the surface when the time is right so that's one one thing that I'm excited about right now are these new paintings of these, I'd say particularly the octopi on a black background. I'd say another one that stands out is the juvenile emperor angelfish that I painted. That's been like within the last year, which was a pretty big painting. I want to say that was maybe uh, the fish itself is like three feet um, wide. And that was just a really difficult challenge because you're familiar with the juvenile coloration of the yeah. angel fish like to have this very short-lived yeah. incredible coloration with these sort of concentric electric blue circles on you know indigo like nearly black background and and um being able to do that with watercolors was just really a challenge because the watercolor um you know obviously dissolves if you put black next to electric blue the black can bleed into the blue. So it's that's uh, difficult, you know, to do that. Um, if you're doing it with oil paint, you can just paint the whole thing black and then paint some blue stripes over it. Anyway, I was, I was pretty happy with how that eventually came out because they're just so stunning. And I'd say a third one would be the uh, giant Trevally that I painted, this, which is also giant. I think that one is more like four feet wide. And I, I just... I mean, I paint every single scale on all the fish, but like I, I just went all out on that one, and I've never seen one, never caught one, but they're uh, they're just always kind of been a dream dream fish for me. So how, yeah, how do you decide on like what fish you're gonna paint? Is it just sort of something that catches your eye, or or do you like have any type of protocol when you're thinking about it? Well, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, because this is what I do full time, I, I've been full time as an artist, I think 11 years now, excuse me. So, you know, because I have a mortgage, I have two kids, one of them's in college. This is what I do for a living. So, you know, I really do have to hustle all the time. I, I do a lot of stuff like since COVID, like all of it's e-commerce now. So really the Unfortunately, what I paint is what people pay me to paint. I don't really choose most of the time, which is great. You know, it's great that people want to pay me to paint 
a portrait of, you know, a peacock bass they call it on Amazon or whatever. That's what I got coming up next. Oh, okay. So they're actually sending you uh photos they've taken yeah. or oh okay. Uh-huh. okay cool. Yeah. 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 A lot of it is commission work where you people it's amazing. Well, I'm sure your audience is the same way. You know, we're all like people that are addicted to fish and yes, <laughs> definitely. A lot of people out there that love fish and and have a particular fish that just is like a mean so much to them that they want a portrait of. Um, so so yeah, it's mostly what people pay me to do. But like this, it's kind of funny. Like I've been working on my commissions during the daytime, and then you know at the end of the day is when I start working on the Blackwater series. So have you ever gotten any uh any pictures that you're kind of like yeah no I can't I can't do it it's it's either a terrible picture or <laughs> you know I have gotten some really bad photos but you know like say it's like a pixel it really badly pixelated rainbow trout and I can see the colors in it pretty well I know the anatomy of a rainbow trout you know like I've I... you'll uh Photoshop edit it in your brain basically yeah i mean i could draw a trout with my eyes closed right right <laughs> gotcha on top of all of this you've also illustrated four books can you kind of mention each of those and and uh i guess what you did and what they're about yeah so um the catalina island dive buddies book was actually a pretty serendipitous story behind that one so i just quit my job and like maybe like a I think it was like literally like two days later, I got this call. I had an agent I was working with at the time, Fred Polemus, um, who was a great guy. And he connected me with um, the people that were writing this book. And that was a really phenomenal project that kind of sort of kickstarted my work, uh, like it, right as I start, as, right when I decided to go full time. So uh, this was written by Mike Rivkin. Um, the, the full name of the book is Catalina island dive buddies and um you know all these books are on amazon and and um barnes and nobles or whatever but um mike rivkin was a uh really pretty well-known person in the uh, fishing community um and uh he's been involved in the igfa international game fish association and so he was sort of the he came from it from uh the fishing side he also uh, has a place on catalina island which is in California, right off of Long Beach. And then, um, but who I worked with most closely was um, the scientific consultant on the project named John Council, who is a diver on the island. He he created the um, Catalina Island Dive Museum. And uh, he and I just got to be great friends and we're still friends to this day. And uh, so I, I had to <laughs> go out to Catalina Island and spend some time diving and so we would go on all these dives together and check out these fish. And and then he was just really brutally honest. And when I'd, I'd make a draft of a painting and I'd send it to him, he'd be like, nope, they fit these these fish do not arc like that when they swim. They swim straight <laughs> as narrow or nope, that sorry, that uh, that orange is not orange enough. It's got to be like <laughs> 10 times more orange, you know. So, yeah, but that was that was a really fantastic experience. It kind of started things off when I went full time. Wild Oceans, that was, uh, I don't know if you remember, like there was this brief period of time when adult coloring books were like this craze where people are just doing all this. They come back and forth. So, yeah, yeah, yeah there's still sort of a thing. Yeah, that was part of that craze where uh, that was kind of a cool project because um, that was uh, Fox Chapel Publishing. The person I was working with 
there really gave me a lot of freedom to kind of craft it how I wanted to. And I feel like that book is is much more than just a coloring book. There's a lot of like instructional stuff in there from some of the workshops that I've taught and things like that. And then in Angler's Journal, that was also with Fox Chapel Publishing. That's um, kind of like a guided fishing journal where, you know, it has some of my illustrations in there. And it's it's sort of like a way of you logging your catch and keeping data and all that stuff. And then the last book that's still forthcoming, I haven't really that aggressively looked for a publisher. I may end up just uh, self-publishing it so I can do it exactly the way I want to. But that's Fish ABCs. It's an ABC book with every fish of the alphabet with, you know, the first letter of the fish name for every letter. You know, A is Atlantic salmon, B is brook trout and so on. That'll be a cool one when that one comes out. Yeah, I kind of picked away over time on that list and eventually got, you know, I think like X. X was one of the last ones or, you know, some of the oddball ones. X was X-ray fish. Sure. Which is X-ray. What do you call it? I think it's a Pristilla Tetra. It's a X-ray. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. An aquarium fish. Um, But those are so cool because you can see right through them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. definitely. So you've already picked all the fish and painted them all. You're just kind of waiting. Okay. Yeah. Just more of a matter of putting aside the time to write and kind of get focused on that one. I'm always being juggling lots of things at the same time. Yeah, because I, I have a, I have a, I'm losing track with five or six grand nieces and nephews now, and I always try to get them like fishy things. So oh, cool. Congratulations. <laughs> that's why, yeah, that's why I was asking about it. But yeah, yeah, you'll have to tell me when it's fine. Right, yeah, I'll keep you posted. Yeah. So those are the books. Now you've also, obviously, I mentioned in my teaser, you're, you are award-winning and have been featured in a lot of journals and publications. How would you say that's that recognition has impacted you and your focus? And do you have any maybe highlights, you know, which of those maybe meant more to you or you remember for various uh, reasons? Maybe some people would have have like a negative impact from those and like that they might feel like there's a being in the spotlight or, you know, f- feel like they're under more pressure to perform if, you know, they got this whatever, some name recognition. But for me, I, I feel like it's never really been like that. It's just one, been more like puts more fuel in my tank, you know. So, yeah, it's like the experiences of getting recognized are just more like, oh, cool, you know, like people actually uh, appreciate what I'm doing. And it's been a very positive experience for me. I'd say the top three are uh, when the Billfish Foundation gave me Artist of the Year. That was pretty prestigious. And, you know, I did the uh, cover design for their 50th anniversary of their magazine, and they did this nice spread on on my work. Another one was the having a feature article in Angler's Journal magazine. They were introduced to me by uh, my agent at the time, Fred Polemus. But just like that, that is a magazine that was at the time that Bill Sisson was the editor. And he, he really made that magazine his life's work. So like, I feel like that magazine is one of the top notch magazines out there in terms of just it being all about the nostalgia and the why of behind why we fish. It's not just sort of like an how-to type of magazine. Each issue really is its own work of art. So yeah, and and also it was on the cover of that magazine too, which was which was pretty rewarding. The World Illustration Awards in uh, Seoul, Korea, that traveled then traveled around the globe. 
That was a, a nice one too, because that was kind of like in a different genre, you know, like I guess I consider myself more of a fine artist, you know, I'm probably am sort of in that gray area between fine art and illustration because my work is so accurate, you know, it's kind of illustration-y, but to get recognized by the World World Illustration Awards, um, that was kind of cool, like in a, di- a little bit of a different genre. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned the, I guess, the Blackwater series. Do, do you have anything else in the future that you're thinking about or gearing up towards? And and speaking of the future, are, are any of your sons following in the uh, science or arty footsteps? Let's see. I mean, I'd say the Blackwater series, that's probably like the the next like up and coming thing that I'm really excited about launching. You know, I actually, I get kind of excited about like all, all the products too. Like, I mean, obviously I sell the original paintings and the prints and stuff, but like what I call functional art, you know, like the phone cases and kitchen towels and t-shirts. Like, I feel like that bring art into people's everyday lives. Like that's a way that, you know, it's not something that's going to break the bank, you know, like obviously a, a, an original painting. Cause I put so much time into it. It's, that's not everybody can own one of those. I know I wouldn't be able to go out, just go out and buy one, but like all those like sort of um, functional art products that are going to come out of that are going to be really cool. Like I'm excited about like seeing what a, a black shirt with one of these black water paintings on it will look like and stuff like that. And then, like I said, I got next up, well, I'm just finishing a uh, green sea turtle. That's pretty big. I think that's like over three feet wide, the, the image itself. And then I have a uh, Amazon peacock bass in the Paku phase that is probably going to be my next painting. And then I have um, I have another little tropical fish. I can't even remember the name of that fish, but um, that's a kind of a, a small, like odd, uh, not a very, okay, hooded butterfly fish, which is of, of you know, it's not a um, particularly well-known aquarium fish as far as I know. Or yeah, like, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure what that looks like. Not like I'll look it up. People seek out to, to, to see when they're diving either. But is it exceptionally um, stunning coloration? And then another one is, I always have trouble saying it, but the, you know, the the state fish of uh, Hawaii, Hamaka Nukuwa. Oh, Hamahama Nukunukuapuaha, whatever. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. That one, that one is another one that's, that'll be coming out real quick here. And then, so as far as the future, like with my kids, you know, it's funny, my uh, older son, Roman, he's um he's studying marketing. So he, we, we kind of been talking about this recently. It's funny you ask about it, but he could probably take on, uh, take over with the e-commerce stuff and and uh, advertising. And and then my younger son, Luke, he's, he's pretty artistic. So, you know, maybe there'll be some stuff that he can do that, you know, either extend the portfolio or there's an endless range of possibilities that can be done with these images once I scan them in, you know, making cool patterns. Like we've made some crazy patterns on fabric and pillows. And um, so, yeah, I think that they'll, they'll, I can pass the torch on to them. Cool. No, that sounds great. Well, unfortunately we are out of time. I wanted to thank you, Nick, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making the show possible. Nick, uh, did you have any final words of wisdom or lessons learned? And I think you you mentioned that for listeners interested that you were going to give a break for anybody interested in purchasing some of your art. Oh, yeah. Well, I just want to say thanks again to you both for having me on. It's been an interesting conversation. So thanks again. I would just, uh, words of wisdom, I would just say follow your passion, you know, like these near-death experiences uh, kind of 
made me think about that kind of stuff and you know how you got one life to live and then uh how um how you can find me is nickmayerart.com and instagram is at nickmayerart and i have like you said i'm i'm uh, offering your audience uh, their own unique 15% off code called aqua15 so if you can use that at nickmayerart it's a q u a 15 so um yeah just uh, a little thanks out to you guys for, who made it all the way to the end of this podcast well thanks a lot and we will definitely have your uh your art webpage link as well as your social media links on your guest bio page online so they'll be able to access it that way so thanks again nick i'm i'm uh looking forward to seeing some of your future work and i uh, obviously i'm going to be checking out your website and getting some things but but yeah definitely uh the abc one i'm i'm gonna be looking for okay (laughs) that's some good inspiration to to uh circle back to that one (laughs) definitely so everyone please be sure to check out nick's aquarium mania webpage which will include the links as i mentioned if you have any questions comments or ideas for a show email me at drroy at petliferadio.com that's d-r-r-o-y at petliferadio.com until next time please visit your local aquarium stores explore nature a bit and be sure to check out nick meyer art let's talk pets every week on demand only on petliferadio.com